So we are now recording. Hi, and welcome to On and Off, our podcast covering the on-premise and off-premise beverage alcohol industry. I'm Melissa Dowling, editor of Cheers. And I'm Kyle Swartz, editor of Beverage Dynamics Magazine. Today we're going to be talking about the spirit and spirits of Kentucky. We have a special guest joining us, whiskey writer extraordinaire Steve Coombs. Steve is based in Louisville and not only an expert on bourbon, but a connoisseur in country ham as well. Welcome, Steve. And while we are absolutely going to get to the country ham, why don't we start with the whiskey? <laughs> so how, how has Kentucky whiskey really transcended into the mainstream culture? And what makes Kentucky different from the other whiskey producing areas? Well, there's a whole book in that answer, of course. And, and so <laughs> let's see if we can't get it down to the back cover alone. Um, Kentucky w- was very lucky in terms of what happened after Prohibition and that many of its existing distilleries did stay, uh, or at least the ones that came back online or were created, such as Heaven Hill, that they survived, uh, had plenty of operating talent around. And, uh, you know, they, they survived consolidations of the decades that followed as well. So that's one of the reasons why Kentucky is strong. Of course, it's a great place to make whiskey because of the soil and the corn that we had in abundance. The, the weather is absolutely optimal for aging whiskey. But, um, you know, it really is a business story more than something that's a little sexier, more romantic to say that, you know, Kentucky's just the ideal place, right? Um, but, but how has it transcended uh, whiskey culture, you know, the, again, that is a, that is a long answer that I, I'll try to shorten a little bit. I'm, I'm sure as many of your listeners know, whiskey was ice cold, you know, between the sixties and seventies. It really, uh, the, the market just collapsed as imported beverages like Scott, uh, not scotch, I'm sorry, vodka, tequila, and gin came aboard and people were all of a sudden fascinated with much lighter spirits. And some people, claim that even, you know, that those rebellious kids of the 60s and 70s looked at whiskey as their parents drink and wanted to do something counterculture. And so it was a lot of forces that that were at work to slow things down. And I, I don't have the exact number, but I want to say that Kentucky lost, oh, certainly ran 10 to 12 distilleries during that time as, as nobody was buying it to any great profitable extent. And I believe that about eight to 10, you know, made it through and they're still alive today. So it's tough um, that it bounced back is kind of, you know, uh, a manifestation of the what's old is new again bit. Mm-hmm. You know, not that people got tired of vodka and tequila, as we know. I mean, they're, they're still super popular. And thank God gin's in there, too. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> but um whiskey was kind of rediscovered and, and nobody I've not found anybody really to to say who did it you know who was that prime customer all of a sudden they noticed that the the needle started moving north you know about you know maybe the late 80s and you can point to the development of single barrels like um Blanton's that was the first um the small batch collection at Knob Creek or, or Jim Beam with the Knob Creek Booker's Bakers and Basil Hayden's and, you know, the uh, bottles like uh, Elijah Craig at Heaven Hill, all of these things that started leveraging whiskey heritage as something important, something American and something, you know, 100 odd years, you know, 200 years old, that caught the attention of a generation. It sounds like a little bit 
like the millennials of today who were thinking, you know, what, what is this craft of which you speak? So um, <laughs> that it was a slow burn until it took off. And uh, gosh, you, know, you, you, can, you can go all the way to, to the new millennia before somebody really lit the fuse on whiskey's renaissance. Um, but, but at the heart of it, definitely were people in their 20s and 30s who were exploring new flavors um, and catching on to that heritage idea. They wanted something uh, that, that appeared to be done by, you know, older companies in a slower style, so, so to speak, you know, maybe less industrial, which is crazy, right? Because it's all industrial at that point. And they tasted it and said, my gosh, this is really good. Where's this been all my life? You know, they hadn't gone beyond Maker's Mark because, you know, which, which is a great soft, sweet whiskey to bolder, higher rye profiles. They hadn't gone beyond cocktails to really enjoy it neat. And, and these dusty bottles on the shelves, well, maybe they're important because they're neglected. So that's really what, what happened. And, and then, of course, you know, social media made it all go crazy once people started fetishizing it and saying, look what I have and look what you don't have and look how many of these I have. And, and I waited in line for this and begged, borrow and stole for it. And somehow all of a sudden that made it popular. So... <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on sort of social media's role in all of this and uh, where you see that going forward? Because it really does seem that social media has taken an oversized role in the creation of some of these uh, mega trends in whiskey. Like you, you mentioned Blanton's, obviously Blanton's is something people buy and just slap it on Facebook. And I love Blanton's, I'm not trying to criticize the brand, but a good example is, uh, is Blanton's just becoming instant likes on Instagram and Facebook. It's crazy. Um... You know, I like the whiskey too, and and we all have to remember that it, it that it, it is a single barrel, and some are really good, and some are not so really good. Um, so I, I don't understand the the craziness over it, even though it is a quality whiskey. But social media, as you correctly said, has played an oversized role in this. Um, I, I did a a piece not long ago that kind of pointed to where it started, and it was when these uh, younger whiskey buyers started selling through eBay. Yep. Crazy, right? Um, and it was just out, out loud and proud. They were selling liquor through eBay. But still, mostly, the, the people that did that will tell you that whiskey was about sharing at that point. Yep. If, you know, it was come over to my house and see what I have, and I'll, I'll, I'll open up whatever I have. It wasn't about uh, the buying and selling so much until people started doing it. You know, eBay would not really quantify social media. But once... Um, once they said you can't do that anymore through eBay, it immediately leapt to social media yep. and people will say private messaging was the greatest sales tool ever, you know, because yep. then you could, you could do it, you know, in the shadows, but, um, somehow people, I, I I'm an outlier and I'm not going to pat myself on the back for it, but I'm not the guy that looks at social media and goes, I got to have that because everybody else has it. Yeah. But that seems to be common in human nature and, and, that has given rise to prices. It's given rise to popularity. It's given rise to, you know, of course, that huge secondary market, which I don't even know how it operates much anymore. You know, uh, since Facebook has cracked down, but apparently it is as, as busy as ever and thriving. So Facebook, quote unquote, crackdown. You can't. I'm, I follow it closely. I don't participate in it. I'm just a, I'm someone who's obsessed with secondary market and whiskey, just from a journalistic standpoint. It's all done through code on Facebook pages now. It's wild to see. And you know, I'm in Facebook groups where I try to warn people that listen. You know, I, if I can decipher the code, that means people much smarter than me can decipher the code. 
And that means that Facebook is going to decipher the code. So at some point that's going to get shut down too. But yeah, it's, it's wild. It all happens on Facebook. It's all through code. And then they meet through, as you said, direct messages and it's driven uh, prices at retail to go up. Uh, and we could talk all day about this, but get, getting back to Kentucky, I want to ask you a little bit, a little bit about the tourism aspect of Kentucky and just sort of how much this has brought people in to recognize some of these great distilleries in Kentucky and just the great whiskey culture of Kentucky and spirits culture in general, inviting all these people who now want to come to Kentucky from a tourism uh, aspect. Oh, that's one of the most exciting things going on here. Uh, obviously, uh, COVID notwithstanding, mm. it was on a roll. It was growing uh, in dollars and uh, actual visits in double digits for years. And, and, and the investment that distillers have made in Kentucky tourism is, is just incredible. It, to be able to see what's happening at Heaven Hill, to be able to see what's happening or what happened with the Bardstown Bourbon Company yeah. started off with this absolutely stunning building like nobody has ever seen that nobody even thinks is a distillery because it's so gorgeous. And then you get inside and it's pure, well, not purely, but often described as Bauhaus, you know, because it's so lean and white and chrome and so unlike every distillery that you go to. Um, it has generated so much revenue for the state, for counties like Nelson County, where Bardstown is located. I think it was $3 million in, in school taxes that went straight to, or barrel taxes, I'm sorry, that went straight to their schools. And it just makes it a really fun place to be. Um, the interesting thing is something that I touched on in the book, if you don't mind me pimping for a second, it's Absolutely. called the Rebirth of Bourbon. Yeah, the Rebirth of Bourbon and building a, uh, a tourism economy in small town USA. And that's the impact that it has had on little old Bardstown has been likened to what happened to the California wine country after the sure. Paris judgment in 1976. Sure. And, and while they're not parallel, they are similar. Um, and, and, and this town is trying to figure out how do we, how do we keep the party going? How do we do it at such a level they really want to come back to and enjoy? And, um, you know, how do we make it authentically Kentucky? So there's real growing pains down there because they love their little small town that <laughs> is now drawing, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of tourists each year. So how do we feed them? How do we house them? How do we make sure that any drink that we serve in our bars and restaurants is as good as what's being served in those distilleries? Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's great. It's great. And what's happening in Louisville is, is even on a larger scale that echoes hotels and restaurants and, and great bartending. So, it, you know, everybody wants to keep bringing them to Kentucky and we're thrilled to have them. And uh, it's great being an ambassador for that and just saying, yeah, I'll tell you where to go. Go here, go there, go there. You know, do this, drink that. It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, one more time. Uh, what was the name of your book again? The Rebirth of Bourbon building a tourism economy in small town America. Small right. town USA, sorry. <laughs> make sure everybody, <laughs> make sure you check that one out. You mentioned spirits, uh, excuse me, cocktails. Melissa, I know you wanted to ask a question about cocktails. Yeah, I, I was curious where you see um, like whiskey cocktails heading in general because the, the classics have really been popular, you know, the, the old fashioned in particular and, you know, the Manhattan and some other things. Um, do you see that continuing or are people getting more, um, you know, sophisticated in what the way that they're mixing with whiskey? Gosh, yes, yes. And yes, is a simple way to address <laughs> that. Um, 
I, I look at what's happened with the great classics like the Manhattan and uh, the old fashioned as, you know, like in uh, that great movie Amadeus when, when Mozart starts playing all the variations on the theme of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. And he, could, he just said he could go on forever. And that's exactly what's happening with those classics are these great riffs that still allow it to maintain, say in the case of the old fashioned, it's undeniably an old fashioned, but there's something new in there that, that, that makes it just a little bit different and a little more exciting. Um, and it's great to see bartenders having the permission to do that, you know, wherever it happens. You know, even in Kentucky, though, you, you, can, you can have some horrible old fashions. That, you know, <laughs> one bar been next there. to the what, What's that? Yeah, been there? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's well, anywhere, anywhere, I suppose. <laughs> There's, you know, I think we journalists often think that if we know about it and we've written about it, well, everybody knows about it, right? And then, oh, sure, we don't need to talk about that. But that's totally untrue. Um, the, uh, we, Kentucky has by no means mastered those drinks in every single place. So there's lots of education to be done. And all that is driven by innovation. And, and Kentucky has a great, well, at least uh, uh, Louisville has a fantastic bartender community that gets together, works on those things, turns each other on to new ideas, and keeps pushing the envelope. So classics, variation on a theme. New ones, you know, you see a lot of split basing going on between, say, maybe, um, you know, a, a fully rye uh, being mixed with a high rye bourbon, just to make it a little bit more creative. It's kind of blending, you know, in, in a way. Um, but the bourbon and rye are such powerful flavors that, you know, they, they, they don't lose much, but they lose some versatility, especially when compared to vodka or gin, which, you know, just can be turned any which way. Yeah. To shape new drinks. So it, it pushes it. Well, speaking of vodka and gin, you mentioned gin before, and I have been seeing more Kentucky producers, you know, making gin and vodka, or at least like it seems like I have. It, is that a thing happening there? I, you know, two that come to mind and that are really good it are, are gins done by New Rift Distilling and Rabbit Hole Distilling. Yep. And I, I don't believe, however, that either of those have made those gins. Um, the reason being, I could be wrong, and forgive me if anybody from Rabbit Hole or New Rift hears this, um, I, I, it is cheaper to buy and more simple to buy GNS off the market and then perhaps, you know, even have contract out that gin to be made. I mean, you look around that you, you could not walk into Buffalo Trace, Jim Beam, Four Roses, Wild Turkey, Heaven Hill, and see a still with a gin basket on it. You know, it's just not going to be there. Yeah. Um, not only do they want to keep that thing pumping out uh, corn-based spirits, <laughs> they want, they, uh, apparently there is some, you know, reconfiguring that you have to do with the still to make it optimal at 190 proof rather than 138 proof, which is about where most bourbons come off. Now back to the gin in question. Um, those are, especially the rabbit hole. It's an yes. absolutely terrific gin. And, uh, I, I can't think of who else off the top of my head's producing one. I can't either. Corsair? I'm is, sorry. Corsair. Oh, of course they're, they're, they're kooky and crazy and fun. They, they make all sorts of stuff. That's their business model is to be very creative in terms of small batch production. Um, and they're, all of their distilling operations have since been moved to Nashville. That's right. I don't, think they're in, 
in oh, Bowling yeah. Green anymore? No. Yeah. I, I don't believe so, which is a shame because I loved going down there. The but, yeah. wonderful stuff come out of them. Yeah, they're all over the map. I've never had the same whiskey from them twice. One of the more innovative distilleries uh, in America. I'm glad you brought up the Rabbit Hole Gin as well. That's the one I was going to point to. I've been a big fan of that gin since it came out. Uh, and they're now, of course, aging, you know, wh whether they're distilling it or not, they're now aging it in their own rye barrels, which is putting at least an interesting Louisville spin on a gin, even if it's, you know, purchased from MGP or who knows. And, you know, if they are distilling their gin again, apologies to Rabbit Hole. I can't remember. Yeah, whether and my apologies, too. In fact, I'll get, when I get off, I'm going to email somebody and say, hey, are you doing I, that down there? Like, I, I, was I was just talking to the same somebody I think you're going to email literally this morning. I just interviewed their uh, CEO again, Kavya, who's one of the uh, uh -huh. intelligent people in the industry. Uh -huh. uh, so yeah, apologies to Rabbit Hole if they're distilling it there. Wonderful, wonderful distillery over at Rabbit Hole. Uh, you know, speaking of uh, tourism, you know, the last, the last time I was in an airplane and went anywhere was in Louisville. Uh, Steve, you and I were on the same media trip at the Bourbon Classic. Yeah, that was a blast. Yeah. God, yeah. that felt like a lifetime ago, but good example of going around all the different distilleries uh, and just seeing the tourism that has uh, grown up there. I was also very impressed with the Bullet Bourbon facility that went up more recently. I thought they put together a wonderful facility there and did a very good job of uh, explaining how bourbon works, how distilling works, how rye works. I mean, obviously us journalists, we understand it, but I can see where uh, people coming in from a tourism aspect would really enjoy that experience. Absolutely. I mean, because there's, there's so many people that have never had bourbon in their life, much less go to a distillery to, to see how it's made. I mean, the, the upside for tourism here is limitless for now, probably limitless for my lifetime. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it's so exciting. It's so much fun. I, I can't think of a bad tour. I mean, people ask me all the time, where should I start? And I said, well, okay. Would you like pretty or gritty? You know, <laughs> pretty, pretty is maker's mark. And it's because they're all yeah. good. Gritty, gritty is 1792 or Buffalo yeah. Trace. I mean, you get to see all this beautiful, you know, old equipment that's still in operation next to some high tech computer that's driving it. So it's really interesting to kind of see the marks of where the industry has come. But yeah. um, also to see, I always love the part about 1792 where they show you where three different um, there's, there's, a, there's one wall outside where there's limestone, brick, and another type of stone that are mixed together at one point. And that was three different distilleries under three different operators yep. that suffered three different fires. So, <laughs> you know, it's just cool to see that. Absolutely. And then you have the brand spanking new distilleries like Rabbit Hole, again, to bring that up. I, I guess we're harping on this for now, but beautiful, beautiful new distillery there. Uh, looks oh, like yeah. That, it's funny. The museum. It is. It's funny to hear the old guard talk about that. And they're saying, man, I never worked in a place that pretty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, it's, they've really figured out how to mix production with glam. And it's, it, it's yeah. so cool. Gorgeous there. So as a uh, New England boy through and through, um, one of the things I really learned when I go down to Louisville is the country ham uh culture nice now. segue <laughs> yeah, thank you thank you uh, so uh, i was wondering uh steve you could tell us tell us a little bit about that and just sort of uh, i well i was at bourbon classic 2020 uh i or yeah 2020 i attended your class on bourbon ham and whiskey pairing so if you want to talk a little bit about that and again you know as, as a new england boy i sure learned a lot oh good um that that that's tied to another book is actually my first one it was called country ham a southern tradition of hogs salt and smoke and and it sounds like a bunch of hokum, but it's really true. I was, I was doing one of the manuscript edits late at night, hungry, 
And it was about the time that I had started writing about whiskey and I, I got up, went to the refrigerator, got some prosciutto thin sliced ham out, started nibbling it. And there's a bottle in the queue for review on my desk. I took a sip and, and I was like, wow, this is great. And several months later, I uh, had approached uh, the Bourbon Classic guys about doing a pairing and Jim Beam stepped up as the sponsor. And there were maybe 65 people there and we paired five different hams with five different Jim Beam whiskeys. And it was terrific. Um, I think the, the one that you went to was 156 at the yeah, same event. So it's audience. Yeah. So it's grown quite a bit. And I, I've done a lot of you know, those tours on the side, not tours, I'm sorry, pairings on the side and, and still do them for hire. We can, it's fun to do them virtually now too. But anyway, um, for people who don't know what a country ham is, just imagine prosciutto that's smoked. You're pretty much there. Uh, it, we in the South, unfortunately, have abused country ham and cooked it for many years, and it turns into a basically leather, leathery, salty mess that I don't like much. But when, it, when, when country ham is treated just like prosciutto and sliced paper thin, it's a whole new experience, different, very different from the Italian presentation. Yep. And uh, it's great, but the fact that it works so well with whiskey is you think about um, the flavors that are involved, especially country and there's smoke, you know, kind of like char in the barrel. Um, and there is just really rich, um, complex umami notes in, in, in the protein. And if you can get, a, especially a particularly fatty ham, you know, the, to have that fat coat your palate and then the protein to kind of magnify some flavors on its own. And then you get to wash it all away with that whiskey. And it makes completely different flavors in both if the pairing is done correctly. So we always try to say complement, contrast, or elevate. And elevate is the goal. And the elevation is when you combine the two and they make two different things or one completely different whole. Um, and that, that's the beauty of pairing. Try them all. Try, you know. Not every bit of charcuterie works. Just a simple ham is the best. You don't want to, I don't think salami works so hot with all that garlic <laughs> and all that good stuff. No, I can't imagine. But, uh, you know, cheeses, usually good aged cheeses work well with whiskey. Um, chocolate's brilliant. You know, the fattier, the better yep. sometimes. Yep. So, yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it is a lot of fun. There was a chocolate element to your uh, class as well, if I'm correct, right? Was, was, did, did, we do, did we do the blue cheese and the... The chocolate. I think pairing. we did. And you worked with the Louisville chocolatier. The, her shop was, I think, down the road. That's right. That's Kelly Ramsey of Art Eatables. And you can buy her stuff online. Some of those brilliant bourbon truffles I've ever tasted. Those are delicious. Uh, we did. She came up with a pairing some time ago to where she had a, a little wafer of 50% of, uh, cacao milk chocolate and this blue cheese. Uh, and she said, I know it sounds crazy, but I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. Mash these two together and then follow it with this whiskey, which is Michter's Unblended, the simplest whiskey in their line. Yeah. And so you got candy, blue cheese, all of a sudden you get a blue cheeseburger in your mouth and then you wash the with the whiskey and it just blooms into all these crazy flavors. It was one of the neatest things that, but I don't know if, did we do that pairing then? God, I can't remember. It was so long ago. And again, this was right before COVID. So it seems like a different lifetime ago. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. I was questioning whether it was 2020 either because it was late <laughs> february i feel like I, you might remember that pairing though kyle yeah <laughs> it was it, it phenomenal. i will say every pairing in that class was absolutely phenomenal so whether we did it or not you know, that was a 1792 pairing so, uh, so yeah. no we did not do that pairing. Yeah. good point good point it was also yeah. but it was good
That was oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great advice to just try them all. I like that. Um, and I'm really hungry right now for mm. a ham sandwich <laughs> and <laughs> a glass of bourbon. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, I want to thank you so much for joining us, Steve. That was awesome. My pleasure, Melissa. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Steve. And be sure to check out Steve's books. I'm sure you can find them on Amazon, online. Search for Steve Coombs. Stevecoombs.com. That's the, that's the best place to get it. Best <laughs> price. <laughs> best price and personalized books. Stevecoombs.com. Check that out and be sure to join us next time when we'll be talking about the world of rum. We'll be talking with our coworker, Marina, who may or may not be sharing her extraordinarily boozy coquito recipe. So tune in for that. And until then, thank you so much for listening and cheers. Cheers, everyone.